welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We are going to carry on our series on the cross. Um, And I'm just turning to the notes. Last week, um, I spoke to you about how the cross was prefigured in the Old Testament. And on the basis of some material that's recently sort of come out in Christian circles, um, I I took the opportunity to emphasize how I believe the Old Testament and the New Testament are in fact one narrative, one story. And that you can't simply, as some people are suggesting we do, jettison the Old Testament. It has some difficult passages, we all know that. We understand that when most postmoderns raise criticisms against the Bible, they are nearly always Old Testament criticisms. But I'm convinced that the answer is not simply to cut the Old Testament off and to make it easier for us to answer people's questions. Um, The problem with that is it breaks into a narrative. It's like calling in and watching a play and trying to pick it up from the fourth act. You know, all of the, the context, all of the plot development, the character development, if, that, if you do that, you've missed all that. And so act four suddenly seems just incredibly strange. You're gonna miss a great deal of it. And so last week I said to understand uh, the Old Testament, you do need the New Testament. And to comprehend the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. They're, they're one narrative. Um, I finished last week by talking very briefly about what the cross accomplished. And I want to pick up that thought with you again this morning and develop the whole idea of what was accomplished in the cross. And uh, if you have your Bibles or you want to read on the screen with me, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 31 is a passage that I've used a little bit these last few weeks. It's the Mount of Transfiguration, and it starts off, and now it came to pass after uh, eight days, about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, you know, just right off the bat, if you notice the word exodus there, which is the word that's used in the Greek, that, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament, the the idea of the people coming out of bondage and slavery and the Passover lamb being slain. That was a story that was embedded in the Israeli psyche into their narrative. And Jesus talking about his soon death and painting it in Exodus colors, as it were, every Jewish reader, every Jewish listener would make the connections that often we as New Testament believers far removed from uh, perhaps Jewish, a Jewish way of thinking, we often miss. And this is what I was saying last week when I said, you have to understand that the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. And that if we're going to understand the New Testament story, we have to familiarize ourselves with the old part of the story. So an exodus is about to be, and the word used here is accomplished. And I've suggested to you a couple of times over the last few weeks that it's very rare to speak of death as an accomplishment. Normally, if we speak about it at all, we would talk about it as an acquiescence, a submission to the inevitable. You know, we we very rarely talk about something being accomplished or being brought to completion or to fulfillment as the idea in the original language. If you were here last week, I, I was talking about Psalm 22 and I talked about 
um, how the cross is prefigured, particularly in that psalm, and how the psalm finishes with the words, he has done it. And when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, many scholars think that he is echoing Psalm 22, because so much of Psalm 22, in fact, he did echo. And so this idea, he has done it, it is finished, something's been accomplished in the cross. And I'd like to consider with you very briefly this morning what it was that he did accomplish. What, what was it that he, that he did? What was it that was finished? Now, obviously, we don't have the time to explore this in depth. In depth the New Testament gives three broad, very broad answers to those questions that might be summed up in the words salvation, revelation, and conquest. In salvation, he rescues us. And there are many nuances of that word. That word is like an umbrella term under which a whole lot of other terms that have to do with salvation fit. Words like regeneration, reconciliation, sanctification, justification, glorification. All of those words fit under that umbrella term salvation. Salvation is what God does from the very beginning when he calls us to the very end when we are in his presence. Everything in between is called salvation. So it's a huge area. Then as revelation, he discloses himself to us. And then in conquest, he overcomes evil. Now, obviously, all of these areas are huge, numberless volumes have been written on them, uh, probably particularly the first and, and the last, salvation and conquest. Maybe the second, revelation, maybe not so much. And so it's that term that I want to just focus on in terms of what did he accomplish at the cross? Yes, salvation. Yes, conquest. But let's focus on this idea of revelation. We don't often think of the cross in terms of revelation, but I believe we should. And uh, that's what I intend to do in this message. To borrow a bit of theological jargon, the cross was a revelatory event as well as a salvific one. Yes, he saved us, but it was also a, an unfolding of something of God's heart to us through the cross. Jesus' life in general, of course, and the cross particularly and specifically revealed to us the heart of God. Now, most of us are familiar with verses like John 1.18, which says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus' life in general was a declaration, an exegesis of who the Father was. And then, of course, you know, when Philip said that in, in John 14, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have and not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we understand that Jesus' life generally was a revelation of the heart of God. But that revelation reaches its pinnacle, its apex on the cross. And the cross was not just simply a saving event, it was also a revelatory event. God's actions reveal God's character. Jürgen Moltmann, the theologian, said, in the crucified cross, hanging on a tree, forsaken by God, we see God's heart toward man. And what I'd like to do again, you know, and even taking this subject, there's way more in it than we can consider in the time that we have, but I'd like to suggest three things that the cross reveals about the heart and character of God. And I want to talk about God's self-emptying humility. I want to talk about his justice 
And I want to talk about his love. Very briefly, three things. So let's go to the first one. The cross reveals God's self-emptying humility. Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight is a very well-known passage. And Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which, was, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross." Famous, famous passage. The words that I want to focus your attention on, I've underscored, I think, there. Um, who, up the top where it says, who, although, being in the form of God. Now, when you think about those words, they imply that the incarnation generally and the cross specifically were a condescension, a, a, a kind of a violation or, almost, an infringement of the identity of God. It's a bit like saying, well, although he's a CEO, occasionally he sometimes sits in the cafeteria with the workers from the, from, from the floor. And the idea is, it's not, it's, it's not normal. It's, it's an unusual event to find that a CEO would um, humiliate himself perhaps and come down to just be with the, the simple workers. The statement, who although, implies this isn't the normal behavior expected either from the CEO or for God. He, he's kind of acting out of character as it were. Acting abnormally perhaps for one who has equality with God. This is, in a way, God acting in a shocking, ungodlike manner. However, there are many, many scholars that say who although is not the best translation of the word that's found here. That the best rendering of the word is actually not who although, but precisely because. Now that, that, that might seem small to you, but, but it's not a trivial distinction. It actually changes the meaning dramatically. Instead of imagining that Christ's incarnation and crucifixion are God being somewhat abnormal, acting out of character, it implies, precisely because he's God, it implies the embodiment of God's true identity. In the cross, God did not act out of character, as although implies, but he acted in, char in character precisely in accordance with the true identity of God. Precisely because he's God, he did those things. That's the kind of thing we would expect from this God who although, oh, oh my goodness, that's not what we expect, but precisely because. Scholar Michael Gorman says, the cross was in fact theophanic, which, by which he means it's a revelation of God's essential attributes. This is what God does precisely because he is God. What he did, although it might seem counterintuitive, extravagant, and perhaps unorthodox to you and I, is not a violation of divinity, but an expression of it. This is the God that we serve. And this God is so counterintuitive to the gods of all of the ages. The gods of all of the ages have been phenomenally powerful, and they are the ones that expect self. They, they are the ones who expect humility and sacrifice. This God, precisely because he is this kind of God, expresses 
that kind of self-giving humility. This is, this is remarkable. This is what the God we serve is like. This is not God in, in a moment of incredible condescension like the CEO says, oh, I'll go down and see how the plebs are doing. And he goes down to the cafeteria where the workers, it's not that kind of God. This is the self-emptying humility of the God that we serve. And, and, and Christ's act, both in terms of his incarnation and ultimately the apex at the crucifixion, isn't a single act that's abnormal for God. It is the fundamental disposition of the triune God. The God that we serve seems really interested in downward, hum, downward mobility, which is so counterintuitive for everybody else. We're always in, talking about upward mobility. God comes in self emptying humility and downward mobility. So the first thing that the cross reveals about God is this incredible humility, the willingness to empty himself precisely because he's this kind of God. The other two really um, are fused together in so many ways, God's love and God's justice. So I wanna read two passages to you this morning from the book of Romans that, that outlined these attributes. Firstly, in Romans chapter three, verse 25 and 26, we read about his justice. For God designed him to be the means of expiating sin by his sacrificial death, effective through faith. God meant by this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had overlooked the sins of the past to demonstrate his justice now in the presence, a presence showing he is both himself just and justifies any man who puts his faith in Christ. And then in Romans chapter eight, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, these two passages talk about two demonstrations of God, two manifestations that give us insight into the character of God. And Romans declares that the cross gives us clear public demonstration of first of all his justice, and then secondly, his love. For, for lots of people, particularly in our culture, those two ideas, justice and love, do not sit comfortably together. They, they seem, as it were, to be in conflict. Is it possible to be able to reconcile them? Can justice and love even go close to coexisting? You know, I, I, sus I suspect that the idea of God's judgment is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines in, in our culture. And you, you often hear people say, how can God be a God of love and also a God of wrath and judgment? You know, I, I would wanna suggest to you this morning that all, love, all loving people are sometimes filled with wrath, not despite, but because of love. When, when we see someone we dearly love being ravished by unwise actions or unwise, uh, destructive relationships, do we respond with benign tolerance? Uh, uh, far from it. If you see somebody moving in on your child or your grandchild in a way that's suspicious or, or potentially destructive, you don't just look at it with benign tolerance, you rise to the fore with, with, with wrath, with anger. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not proud to admit this, but many, many years ago, one time I was in Chartwell and my son Dion, who was about 13 at the time, was with me. And um, as teenagers are wont to do, he wasn't walking beside me. He was walking about 10, 15 feet in front of me with his hat on trying to be cool. 
And I, I'm wandering behind, trying not to get in his way, and I noticed some guys come up to him and talk to him. And he looked a little bit uncomfortable. I stood off and, and then walked quietly up to him and said, what did they want? Uh, not much. I said, no, no, what did they want? He said, they, they told me to take off my hat and give it to them. I went, oh, okay. And uh, what did you say? I said, no, I'm not going to do it. As it was, they, they walked off. They didn't take it off him. But they circled round and came back. And they obviously didn't know, with me walking 20 feet behind, that I was associated with him, and they thought he was by himself. And so they came up and, uh, and, and started to get round him, and, and uh, one of them sort of gave him a bit of a push and reached for his hat. At that time, Father Bear arrived at about 200 miles an hour and <laughs> hit that kid so hard in his back that he flew about five meters in front of him. And I stood over him and said, you want a hat like that? You buy one, son. <laughs> now push off or I'll break your neck and then you won't need a hat. This is your pastor speaking, in great love, I might add. You know? Need, needless to say, they moved on, Dion kept his hat, and I came home and repented. <laughs> Tell you what, if you love somebody and you don't get angry, there's something wrong with your love. At times, your love rises in wrath. Now, I'm not suggesting that God's wrath and mine are, you know, we're pretty equal. <laughs> you understand that mine's very, very different. But when you see someone you love in danger, you don't just respond with benign tolerance. Miroslav Volf, the Croat theologian, said, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. Judgment and anger are not opposites. Judge, they're not the opposites of love, sorry. Love requires judgment and requires anger at times. And the Bible insists on both God's love and God's justice. Those attributes do not conflict with each other. They establish each other. One without the other actually ends up nonsense. Love without justice ends up as sloppy sentimentality, and judgment without love ends up as harsh severity. The Bible says, behold, the goodness and the severity of God, they, they merge together. Both God's justice and his love arise from the same source, his goodness. He's a judge because he's good, and he's a loving savior because he's good. You know, ironically, a lot of people who reject God's judgment usually have no problems demanding that a government department or the multinational company that they have stocks in submit themselves to an annual audit. We, we expect them to, to front up and tell us how they've done. Those entities have been given funds to manage and a budget to keep to, and the audit determines whether they've discharged their duties effectively or properly or not. Did they spend the money wisely? Did they spend it well? And since we might have invested capital in their company, we demand answers to those questions, and rightly so. Friends, judgment is an audit. God has invested in mankind. And there is to be an audit for all. And what we anticipate and expect of multinational companies and governments, he expects of us as individuals. And you know, the problem is, intuitively, we know in advance the result of the audit because we've fallen well short of what's expected to us and what's been entrusted to us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says in Romans. We've misused the resources entrusted to us, not just unwisely, but sometimes wantonly, sometimes selfishly, sometimes destructively. And if God is good and he's a God of justice, he will not, indeed he cannot, simply overlook that. 
You know, if postmodern people believe in God at all, they invariably believe that he's a God of absolute love who ultimately will pardon everybody, a kind of ollie ollie inferi. But, but if you imagine that God can, in some kind of grandfatherly manner, simply pronounce a universal pardon by waiving you know, uh, people's sin, then I'm sorry, but you have failed to understand the seriousness of sin. For sin is not simply a regrettable lapse. It's not simply a small indiscretion, you know, tut tut, boys will be boys problem. You know, again, I suspect if, if, if Harvey Weinstein went to court and, and the courts dropped the charges by simply saying, oh, well, boys will be boys, most of us would be totally disgusted with the integrity of that kind of court. And yet it seems to me that's exactly what we want God to do in his cosmic courtroom, somehow just kind of wave it away. Well, sin isn't a regrettable lapse. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 tells us that in essence, it's our hostility toward God. It's our enmity toward him. It's our assertion of human independence. We will not have this man to reign over us. And God in his holiness, in the holiness of his love, finds himself incompatible with our position of rebellion. He is disgusted by it. He is angered by it. He refuses to come to terms with it. And what we can be sure is that when God searched, as it were, in his mercy for some way to forgive and cleanse and accept evildoers, it could never simply be along the road of moral compromise with some kind of tut-tut, boys-will-be-boys, never-mind attitude. It had to be a way in which his love and justice are equally balanced and expressed. Sinners must incur the penalty of their law-breaking. The law must be upheld in its dignity and it be defended and its just penalties paid. These, these laws, by the way, aren't something, something over and above God to which he is submitted. They are an expression of his own inner holiness. This is his own inner moral being. And as much as we might like him to be solely love, I'm sorry he's not. He will not, indeed I would say he cannot, allow divine holiness simply to be swallowed up by divine love. One thing God cannot do in the face of human rebellion is nothing. And so he must either inflict punishment or assume the punishment. And we know that he chose the latter. The latter course in which he assumed our punishment and took his own judgment. God took the initiative and in Christ came and paid the price that broken law righteously demanded. In the famous words of Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows and he was wounded for our transgression and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The passage I read in Romans chapter three that demonstrates the justice of God says that God set forth the Son as a propitiation. It's an unusual word. It's not a word we use a lot in our colloquial English, but propitiation is a, is a word that has to do with placating somebody's anger. Somebody who is righteously anger and you have to do something to settle them down. It's used in the Old Testament. You might remember the time that Jacob is making his way back from Uncle Laban coming back to his home uh, territory and Esau hears that Jacob is coming, gets 
together a whole bunch of men, four or five hundred men, and comes out to meet Jacob. Now, last time Jacob and Esau met, Esau was threatening murder. So Jacob assumes that he's coming to act out that threat. And so what he does is he divides up his company. You might remember the story. puts a whole lot of cows and, and sheep and animals out the front and then one group of people and then more animals and another group of people. And the, the goal, he says, is that as he comes, he'll bump into the first group of people. Who are you? Oh, we're, we're from Jacob and he's giving these to you as a gift. Get out of the way. And he charges onto the next group and finds the animals and people and they go, who are you? Well, we're, we're Jacob's servants and he's sending these to, to show you that he's sorry and that he wants to make peace. Hmm, hmm, out of the way. By the time he gets to Jacob, he's gonna be placated. That's, that's the idea, crudely. Jacob sends these gifts to Esau to, to placate his anger. You know, Esau had a right to be angry. He was deceived by Jacob. Jacob was incredibly deceptive, and, and uh, he realizes that a propitiation is required. You know, it's a very small, perhaps inadequate picture of what our sin has done. And the, the anger of God cannot simply be pushed away off the books and say, oh, well, forget it. Divine holiness will not allow that occur, to occur. You know, God sends his son and he becomes the sacrifice that placates the righteous, holy anger of God. Over the years, more particularly probably in the last 10 years, I've heard some people, some Christians, horrified that God would do this to his son and forgive me, but talk drivel and nonsense about the cross being an act of divine child abuse. To talk such nonsense is to completely misunderstand the nature of the Trinity. God the Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal that he was reluctant to bear, nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation that he was reluctant to bestow. This is the will of the triune God coinciding in perfect self-sacrifice and love. Salvation was, is, and always will be the act of a triune God. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, not standing off as some abusing Father. He's in Christ, reconciling himself to the world. And it says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is able to be offered because the eternal spirit is in him, allowing that offering to take place. The salvation is the act of a triune God and the propitiatory nature of that sacrifice uh, of Jesus on the cross is a weighty revelation and demonstration of firstly the justice of God. Sin is a serious matter. And I know people mock it these days. The only place you're probably liable to find sin in our culture is if you go to a restaurant and there's a decadent chocolate dessert. But God is not mocked. And when the law is broken, penalty is exerted. But God in his great love comes and says, I will take that penalty. A powerful, powerful demonstration and manifestation of his love. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Again, theologian Jürgen Mockmann says, Behold, the Christ has been rejected to end rejection. Christ has been oppressed to end all oppression. God has died to end all death. God is the scapegoat that ends all scapegoating. What love is this? It is the love of the crucified God. You know, I guess most of us as human beings have 
experienced at least some degree or quality of love, but the scripture suggests that the only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world, and it is the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for the sake of undeserving sinners like you and me. John 3.16, we all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but, have ever, but, but will have everlasting life. The, the incredible manifestation of the love of God and it finds its apex on the cross. It is a revelation of his self-emptying humility. It is a revelation of his holiness and justice. It's a revelation of his incredible love. You know, that verse, John 3.16, has been called the greatest verse in the Bible, and it is the greatest verse in the Bible in some senses for good reasons. Let me take you through it very briefly. Four is the greatest possible reason. God is the greatest possible being. So is the greatest possible measure. Loved is the greatest possible love. The world is the greatest need. That he gave is the greatest act. His only begotten son, the greatest cost. That whosoever is the greatest possible offer. Believes is the greatest simplicity. In is the greatest possible refuge. Him is the greatest possible savior. Should not is the greatest possible prevention. Perish is the greatest possible loss. But is the greatest possible alternative. Have is the greatest possible possession. Everlasting is the greatest possible duration. And life is the greatest possible force. I wish I was a black preacher right now. Because that little rendition would sink into insignificance when you've got a black preacher doing that. Can you just imagine it? I tried it and thought, forget it. <laughs> the greatest possible verse in the Bible. The cross is the unparalleled manifestation and revelation of God's heart to you and me, of what he's like. It is not just about salvation and it's not just about conquest. It's him opening up his heart and saying, this is who I am. Precisely because I am this kind of God, I have given myself, and justice has been satisfied, and the love that I have for you has been displayed and declared. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.